History Sucks. Yes, we have a new name. It's a new and better name. Historical Mechanicalism is no more. We're calling the podcast History Sucks now. And we're still, you know, going on with our series about the life and times of Lyndon Baines Johnson. So we'd like to start by thanking the good people on the Mechanical Freak Discord. Thank you, freaks, for pointing out that History Sucks is a way better name than the <laughs> name that we previously used. You won't mention that name any longer. It's dead to us. We actually forgot. Yeah. <laughs> Today, uh, we'll bring you the first in a, in a two-part intermission that'll help set up uh, the latter part of the series as LBJ gets into the Senate and continues on the path to power, as some might say. Um, so today, in this uh, intermission, we're going to talk about the post-war political climate that kind of frames uh, Johnson's entry into the Senate and then presidential tenures. And next week, we'll discuss the history and the function of the Senate itself, all the way up to a point where LBJ enters the Senate. But for today, we're kind of trying to... Um, kind of set set the the scene for you know what's what's the climate of the US like what's the political situation like what's you know how's labor doing uh what's the business community doing um you know how is that going to you know shape things going into the late 40s and 50s so this this podcast is going to be, you know, related to our series on LBJ or the Jumbo series, but you can also listen to it fairly, you know, standalone. And the theme of it is going to be the reaction to the New Deal era. Brian, so what what would you say uh, kind of encompasses this this big reaction to the New Deal era. Era, like what's what's happening, and uh, you know what is the reaction, and why is there a reaction? Yeah, we talked about this a little bit in our episodes on Harry Truman, which people can go back and listen to. And uh, one of the things we talked about is that capital it acquiesces to the New Deal, but it never really accepts it, right? It accepts it as, in most of their minds, a temporary sort of uh, measure to stay, you know, potential revolutionary elements in the United States. And really, uh, by the late 30s, groups like the National Association of Manufacturers, or NAM, and the Chamber of Commerce, two groups you're going to hear a lot about today, uh, were already sort of laying out the problem, right? So, you know, as the NAM board of directors said in 1938, quote, the hazard facing the industrialists is the newly realized political power of the masses. And unless the masses thinking was redirected by business, then business was, quote, headed for adversity, right? And to that end, 
they really set about to reshape the minds of the American working class. What Edward Bernays, who was working for this uh, propaganda campaign, we refer to as engineering consent later. Um, But yeah, you know, Harold Laswell, another uh, big name who was working for them, you know, stressed that they would have to, uh, you know, change the way people think that they would have to, Uh, Make it to where when workers hear the word capitalism, they replace it with freedom and democracy, you know, Uh, the family, the church and patriotism, and that communists and socialists would be subversive, outsider, foreign, right? Um, This was the goal. And ironically, World War II kind of gives them this, this moment where they they can, they kind of can get a little bit of the edge back they had lost during the 30s. Uh, again, because as we had talked about when we talked about uh, the, the podcast with Harry Truman, uh, Roosevelt basically had to cut a deal with business in order to fight World War II, which was business said that they were going to sit on the sidelines and refuse to run their factories for war production unless Roosevelt got, you know, kicked new dealers out of his cabinet, let business determine the terms on which the, the war would, uh, that the production war would be fought. And as a profit, you know, as a product, you know, corporate profits soared. You know, they went up 250%. There was a wage freeze for workers, but prices increased. Um, you know, factories were built by the state and then handed over to business for, you know, pennies on the dollar. Uh, you know, generally, uh, it was a windfall for American capital yeah. who then used that windfall to engage in a massive propaganda campaign against the working class. Yeah. So, I mean, backing up a little bit, the the Chamber of Commerce didn't always exist, right? Like, it yeah. kind of came up in the, the progressive era, didn't it? Yeah, uh, both the NAM and the Chamber of Commerce are products of the progressive era. And more interestingly, they're products of what would be called the sort of the, you know, uh, Robert Wiebe, the historian, one of the big historians of progressive era called it the search for order, but the the rationalization of American life, right? So this idea that everything had to be rationalized, it had to be labeled, contained, all this kind of stuff. And so in labor, you know, the argument was this was happening in the form of the labor union movement, right? So workers were getting together, they were organizing around single interests, right? And things like that. In capital, this happened too. And local businesses were starting to pull together and form local chambers of commerce. Yeah. Uh, this eventually grew into the National Chamber of Commerce, uh, headquartered in D.C. Uh, similarly, uh, manufacturers, uh, you know, industrialists who were upset over labor organizing, uh, got together, pulled together, and pulled their resources together to create the uh, National Association of Manufacturers, which was, or the NAM, which basically uh, was in its construction an anti-union bulwark, right? And at various times, they've had more or less influence based on, I mean, these are coalitions of like ruling class elements, right? You know, Chamber of Commerce tends to represent more local elements. Uh, the NAM represents industrial, larger industrial elements of the American ruling class. But they're uh, essentially like friendship societies of the American yeah. ruling class, who at various times will be more interested in doing stuff and less interested in doing stuff. And yeah. by 46, they're very interested in doing stuff. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I think uh, the Chamber of Commerce is super interesting because it kind of represents, you know, class solidarity of the ruling class, but yeah. then also, uh, you know, small business owners, you know, <laughs> the the petty bourgeoisie. And um, yeah, various times in history, especially, yeah, around this time. And then I think around the, the 70s and 80s, uh, the, the Chamber of Commerce, and of course, up till now, the Chamber of Commerce becomes more and more powerful and uh, more and more kind of refined as like a political force. There, there's a really good Jacobin article on it, um, on the history of the Chamber of Commerce. I don't have the exact name of it off the top of my head, but we could perhaps put that in the, the show yeah. notes. Yeah, and I think in the, this episode, we'll put a little bibliography in the show notes that, that we'll link to that'll have uh, links to some sources on this stuff if people are interested. And uh, and yeah, I mean, this point of like putting people in communication, I mean, the Chamber of Commerce is interesting because it takes these, you know, what would be small fry elements of capital, local real estate interests, small business owners, all that kind of stuff. And it puts them, it creates a direct point of contact between them and what you might call the larger American ruling class, you know, through the National Chamber of Commerce in D.C., right? Yeah. Like all of a sudden there's a way they can all talk to each other. Uh, which I think we're going to find out is not good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for those listening in, in Seattle, we've seen the power of our own Chamber of Commerce in uh, several election cycles now. And you've seen the, the collaboration between, uh, you know, Amazon and various other businesses to back. Or, or just uh, go against certain certain candidates. Yeah, it'd be hard for Jeff Bezos to contact every uh, you know restaurant owner and uh, like you know small fry real estate guy in Seattle, but it's not hard for him to call the Chamber of Commerce. Yeah, exactly. It's very uh, streamlined. So the the NAM kind of uh, is interesting too. Um, it's it's kind of interesting that you know the the NAM is kind of its own thing and it never kind of merged with the the Chamber of Commerce. Um, yeah, and you know, and I think that just represents the the very specific nature of it. I mean, yeah, it literally is for industrialists, right? So, and it's it's going to encompass all the major players in American industry from. Boeing, to General Motors, to Ford, to IBM, to General Mills, etc., right? Quaker Oats is a major participant, right? Um, it's, you know, all these big industries who, you know, I think it's safe to say don't give a fuck about local real estate disputes and things yeah. like that, you know? And, uh, you know, I think definitely see themselves as the titans of American capital and the rightful, you know, rulers of the United States. Um, they may not be, uh, direct, uh, like the, they're not going to merge, but they certainly will work together. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and the NAM uses the chamber of commerce a lot of times as a clearinghouse for its literature. The chamber of commerce typically has deeper ties into the community and stuff like that. And so the NAM can like use them to push literature out and things like that. Uh, so they create, they create a nice working relationship when they feel the need. And I guess to... To put a bow on maybe on maybe th this portion of the podcast, I think what what's what we'll kind of come back to later on is just this kind of multi pronged 
approach by, um, you know, the, the Chamber of Commerce, NAM, um, you know, other forces of reaction to kind of uh, dig away, like tear apart the, the New Deal era mm-hmm. and uh, but also like kind of wage this cultural war at the same time as they're eating away at policy. Um, and so yeah. this this like avalanche of propaganda kind of <laughs> kind of helps them out toward towards both ends. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And by, you know, 1946, the NAM, the Chamber of Converse, uh, Commerce and the Advertising Council are spending $100 million a year in propaganda campaigns. And, you know, so Fortune magazine editor Daniel Bell described it as an effort to, quote, rewin the loyalty of the worker, which now goes to the union and to halt creeping socialism, you know, or in the words of the Ad Council to, quote, educate the American people about the economic facts of life, (laughs) which is uh, a mildly terrifying way. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing to understand is in these campaigns, they're working together and separately simultaneously, right? So they have individual things they're fighting for and things that they're willing to work together. You know, get, getting back to kind of what what the Chamber of Commerce and NAM and uh, Capital are actually doing, like uh, trying to do policy-wise, um, there's this whole campaign to kind of dismantle the office of price administration. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the, the OPA uh, basically was created during the war to control prices, right? So they would set limits on price increases and things like that. And it was, you know, despite the fact that prices did go up during the war, it was, the OPA was effective in limiting that. And as you might imagine, you know, one of the things that controlled was food prices, uh, was pretty popular. People liked yeah. it, right? And, but not business, <laughs> key. <laughs> and so the National Association of Manufacturers, the Chamber of Commerce, they launched this campaign in 1946 to get rid of the OPA. And this campaign is their first big political push to achieve like a definite political end. And it's really astonishing in how successful it was. They spend about $3 million dollars on uh, mailings, they send these anti-OPA publications to 127,000 teachers, clergymen, and women's clubs. They give talks, uh, more than a thousand talks, at civic clubs, church groups, and student groups. They spend a million and a half dollars uh, in newspaper advertising, you know, decrying the OPA as communist and you know anti-American, and. The end result of all this work is over the course of the year, the approval rating for the OPA goes from 85% approval to just 26% approval. Holy crap, yeah. I mean, they collapse support for this organization in, I mean, record time. Congress dissolves the OPA, something that they wanted to do but couldn't because of yeah. you know popular support. They dissolve it. Prices skyrocket. The price of food goes up 28% almost overnight. Uh, it cancels out all the wage gains that workers made during strikes uh, in the past year. Um, it really is 
a bonanza. Like business records the highest net profits <laughs> in history up to that point. Like it is a massive, massive victory for business that they were able to accomplish via this sort of propaganda apparatus they were building. And what ends up happening after that is emboldened by this attack on the OPA. They immediately shift it to the shift the support in this apparatus towards supporting the Taft Hartley Act, which of course members of the National Association National National Association of Manufacturers wrote. <laughs> yeah, wow, and that uh, <laughs> that that connects back to uh, some of our previous podcasts on Taft Hartley Act. Yeah, and, I, and you guys can go back and listen to the Truman one. Uh, the long story short, you know, uh, to quote the the head of General Electric, uh, the reason why we needed Taft Hartley was that the problems of the United States can be captiously summed up in two words: Russia abroad, labor at home. And yeah, that's not two words; it's actually five words. But <laughs> you know, it gives you the idea of where business's mind was at, right? And uh, you know, Taft Hartley really was just a knife in the fucking heart of labor. I mean, it really just killed the labor movement almost overnight. And this was not lost on on anybody when it passed. Right. Uh, unions, you know, union organizers were pointing out that basically we've just been, you know, we've been killed. Right. Uh, but Business Week hilariously announced very triumphantly that it was, quote, a new deal for America's employers, right? Yeah. <laughs> Using very strategic language here. And, uh, you know, again, five straight years of unprecedented profits followed the Taft-Hartley Act and the complete stagnation of the American labor movement. <laughs> sure. I guess uh, just, just maybe to push back slightly, like it's important to note that like we still have pretty high like union density up until the the 70s i mean sure mm-hmm. like the policy change changes definitely like affected uh you know the the power of labor like immediately but um i think it's important to note that this and we'll get into this more but this like cultural push as well like the combination yeah. of all this propaganda as well as the policy uh, they kind of both work in in tandem, uh, perhaps to kill or, or you know weaken the labor movement over time. Yeah, yeah. Taft Hartley only works in combination with a massive, you know, cultural campaign of anti communism, right? Yeah, like the Taft Hartley Act only fun like the whole function. I mean, it gives employers a lot of new powers over labor that they didn't have you know formally at least before it also takes away a lot of powers from unions uh but the real key thing is it allows for the purge of union organizers and that can only happen with the what you know another red scare essentially yeah so what what were kind of uh some some of the details of the task Hartley Act in that regard. What what did it require? You know, uh, you know, officials and uh, labor organizers to do. All right. So here's you know, this is from uh, 
the book uh, Labor's Untold Story, uh, which was written by the Electrical Workers Union uh, in the 19, early 1960s. So writing the Taft-Hartley Act, the authors write, quote, the Taft-Hartley Act reinstituted injunctions, gave courts the power to fine for alleged violations. It established a 60-day cooling-off period in which strikes could not be declared. It outlawed mass picketing. It provided for the suing of labor for, quote, unfair labor practices. It denied trade unions the right to contribute to political campaigns. It abolished the closed shop, went far towards building the conditions for a return of the old open shop days that preceded the CIO. It authorized employer interference and attempts of his employees to join a trade union. It prohibited secondary boycotts. It authorized and encouraged the passage of state anti-union right-to-work laws, which, by the way, you know, the NAM and Chamber of Commerce immediately started pushing for. And Washington State was one of the first states that actually did push for it, but immediately started pushing for after the pass of Taft-Hartley. Now, there's an addendum that later comes to the Taft-Hartley Act uh, that basically requires loyalty oaths amongst yeah. uh, union members. And this is what we're talking about when we talk about uh you know, essentially requiring an anti-communist atmosphere, which is if you didn't sign this loyalty oath saying that essentially you pledge yourself to the United States and pledge that you're not in any way a communist or socialist, um, if you refuse to sign it, you literally cannot negotiate, <laughs> you know, in a uh, labor dispute. If you sign it and somebody accuses you of being a red, which is usually all it takes because you're not going to actually get any sort of trial or anything, uh, you can actually get purged from the union, as did happen to, you know, many, many organizers. Yeah, who a lot of whom were like the best, the best organizers that were actually communists. Yeah, I mean, we should probably take a second and, and talk about the CPUSA for a minute because... You know, we're, we're sort of circling around this idea of, uh, you know, why do we keep talking about getting the communists out of the labor movement? Because, you know, if you've been to like an AFT meeting or anything, you know, that like, you know, it's, it's far from, uh, you know, a meeting in Red Square or something, right? Yeah. Um, but at the time, you know, the CIO, which was the most active, dynamic and fastest growing uh, labor organization in America, the probably majority of its organizers and certainly its most dedicated ones who were getting the most gains, who were, you know, doing things like organizing in the deep South stuff that people thought was impossible prior to that, uh, were literally all communists. Like, I mean, it, it, when business says that the labor movement is like riddled through with communists, they weren't lying. It was, it was totally true. Which makes sense because, you know, communism is a pro-working class political position and, uh, you know, anti-communism is not. So one had more popularity than the other. Uh, in getting rid of these people, these organizers, they essentially got rid of their most dedicated organizing staff. And, you know, it's not hard to you know see what's going to happen after that. And and I'm sorry, the, uh, and just to mention the CPUSA, its size, I mean, 66,000 members in the 1930s yeah. are in the CPUSA. Uh, it has a paper distribution of like 35,000. You know, it's a big party. <laughs> well, and especially since, you know, the, the population of mm. the United States was, I don't know, like a half or a third what it is now. I don't know exactly. Something yeah. like that. So if you compare it to like the, the DSAs right now, like 90,000 members, well... 
DSA's like active membership is probably maybe like 15,000 versus, yeah. you know, most of those CPUSA members were probably pretty active, I would guess. I don't know exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, to, to be in the CPUSA at this time, I mean, you're essentially part of an illegal organization. I mean, there was all sorts of consequences for being a CPUSA member uh, that I think we could safely say are not quite true of being a DSA member, like being blacklisted. You could go to jail, like, you know, yeah. all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, and the membership in the organization, you know, it, to be a member was different. It was, it wasn't just you paid dues, you know, you actually had to do things, you know, to be considered a member, you had to come to meetings, you had to, and if you yeah. went to meetings, that meant that they were going to have you actually go do stuff, you know, yeah. uh, whether it was just going out and selling papers, that would be how you began. But, you know, eventually they wanted you in factories organizing people, you know, that was your job. Um, and so, you know, when we say, you know, 66,000 members, I mean, this is 66,000, like, working, active members, not just hanging out, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a very good context. And also, in an orga- organization that's not quite, like, a big tent organization, mm-hmm. like, there's a very, yeah. like, coherent approach in politics to all of this. Yeah, I mean, in theory, at least, it has a single political line and goal, right? You know, um, it's you're not forming uh, various caucuses <laughs> inside of it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fighting for this and that, right? You know, it, it is. And the other part of it, too, is that it had a organized political theory and goal, and it had international representation of that goal. So there was a vision of what yeah. success could be, right? And the fact that the Soviet Union existed and then China would eventually exist, right? Um, which is, again, different. I mean, this is that's not DSA's fault, but, you know, part yeah. of the problem with DSA is there is no material, like, end point that is visible for people to see. Yeah. I mean, I, and even, like, even to the 60s when there's this whole, you know, like kind of third world uh, Mm -hmm. communist movement, like that definitely like inspired people here. And that's why you saw a lot of, uh, you know, Marxist Leninist organizations pop up here as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not the only reason, but that is, you know, a big factor. uh, Uh, Yeah. I mean, having talked to plenty of, uh, boomers who are part of like radical left organizations in the late sixties. Yeah. All of them to a person said that at the time they believed they truly believed the revolution was around the corner. Now yeah. from our perspective today, you know, we laugh and say, how could you believe that? But you have to remember their very earliest memory was China going red and, you know, one sixth of the, all the land on the planet. <laughs> Being, being communists, right? They, yeah. you know, watching Vietnam defeat the American war machine, seeing Cuba, you know, succeed and essentially hold off, you know, the you know, American, you know, terrorism, uh, you know, all that for, you know, a decade, right? I mean, what they were looking at from their perspective, looking at that, looking at the social unrest in the United States, looking at the government's seeming inability to do anything to stop it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it probably did feel like it was around the corner, uh, which is why so many of them, uh, I think, wound up being so depressed later in life. 
Yeah, definitely. And our writing uh, letters to the editor at the New Yorker or Harper's or whatever about how we need to, you know, get with the program and support Biden now. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. we're we're deviating a little bit, but yeah. um, I I guess the the main thing to keep in mind is that you know right right now going back to you know the forties Taft Hartley uh, this propaganda campaign. Um, we're in the middle of a, a second red scare, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, this propaganda campaign is sought to, you know, label any any demand that, like, workers are making to, you know, like, you know, build worker power or, you know, get higher wages, like, whatever, as, as communist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this this Red Scare, you know, it's essentially formalized in in 1938 uh, with what the creation of what's called the Dees Committee, which was created by this guy, Morris Dees from Texas, a uh, Republican from Texas. And, or, I'm sorry, a senator from Texas. But the Dees Committee, you know, created with Roosevelt's blessing was created with the idea, at least the public facing idea that they were going to uh, find, you know, sift out all the uh, fascists in weight hiding in America, the the fascist fifth column in the United States, right? Yep. Uh, you know, this would eventually evolve into what's called the House Un-American Activities Committee, but from its very beginning, uh, it found itself not too concerned with fascism, but extremely interested in communism, socialism, you know, anything to the left of Attila the Hun, essentially. And yeah. when we say communists and socialists, we have to remember when they're hunting these people down, uh, whether or not you actually have a CPUSA card in your wallet is not going to matter <laughs> whether they think you're a communist or socialist, right? You know, it, it's going to be based off of your actions and what they think about your actions. Um, the committee, I mean, prior to the war starting, it it was calling people up. I mean, one of the funniest incidents in like the D's committee's existence was in like 1939, they kept dangling a hearing for Leon Trotsky was in Mexico city at the time. And Trotsky yeah. was actually feeding them names. Right. Cause the, wow. cause basically if he was able to get a hearing, like, you know, he said he would speak in front of the D's committee in exchange for entry into the United States. Right. And uh, it was actually like giving them names and shit. And I think the funniest thing to ever happen in the HUAC hearings, of which there's a lot of funny things, actually. The funniest thing to ever happen was uh, the D's committee telling him, "Uh, you actually don't know enough about international communism. We're not interested. (laughs) (laughs) One of the funnier moments. And then, of course, he got axed afterwards. But let's let's not make any jokes about that. I don't want to be doxxed by the World Socialist website. If you're listening, please, I, I don't need any of that. I don't need any of this trouble. Hilariously, so I made a joke about this to Justin, and he sent me this link from, I guess, 2018, maybe? Where, where people have made some jokes about Trotsky getting ice picked. No, this, this is recently. This oh, is recently? like a month ago, yeah. Oh my god. Anyways, the <laughs> In true, in true form, in true Trotskyist form, uh, in their complaints about uh, people tweeting, the entire article is just the World Socialist website just naming names. Just, yeah. I, was like, I was like, hey, just like their boss. <laughs> just like Daddy Trotsky. <laughs> but please, please don't, don't name us. I 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah but please don't. But do uh, look into historian William Chase, who is by no means a Stalinist. Uh, look into his articles about Trotsky and his time in Mexico. I'll just say, and Diego Rivera. Uh, never meet your heroes. Uh, you can enjoy Diego's paintings, but also with selling people out. Sounds good. <laughs> so uh, back back to the the Chamber of uh, Commerce. They're they're getting in on uh, this Red Scare, right? Like they're mm-hmm. they're pushing they're pushing some some propaganda on this. Uh, what what exactly is going on here? So yeah, so I mean they're they're forced to take like the D's committee has to take a little break, you know, in 1942, uh, because the U.S. is now in World War II and the Soviet Union's an official ally, so they can't, you know, they. You know, they have to they have to take some time off. Um, but the second the war's over, they're back at it, and Chamber of Commerce is right there to help. And they start publishing these pamphlets. The first one's called The Communist Infiltration of the United States. They follow it quickly with Communists Within the Government. And uh in the targets of these pamphlets in which they're naming names of various, you know, people who they believe should be official enemies of the United States. The targets was just anybody who didn't have a pro-business line. And this is what I mean about sort of, you know, when, when we talk about how they're, they're you know, calling out communists or all this kind of stuff, you always got to put communists in quotes because it literally is just anybody yeah. they don't like. And Senator John Butler, uh, you know, he, he clarified this point when he said uh, that a communist infiltrator is anyone with a pro-union anti-management bias. <laughs> so, you know... Don't think that uh, if you sell the communists out, that they aren't going to come for you, too, I guess is the point. <laughs> but um, the end result of this is that it pressures President Truman into essentially making millions of government workers sign loyalty oaths, declaring themselves not to be communists. This matters because there are a lot of people still uh, running New Deal programs who are, in fact, communists. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, that, again, is also not untrue. Uh, yes, when the U.S. government was doing the most good things for the most people, there were a lot of communists in it. <laughs> Shouldn't shy or, away from that fact. <laughs> yeah, or, I mean, or even, like, ex-communists yeah. who kind of yeah. be- became, like, consumer-oriented kind of liberals. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, you know, look, uh, we don't want to push the line that gets pushed by the chamber of commerce that everybody in America who expresses a left belief is some sort of stooge of Moscow, like a puppet being, you know, operated from Moscow, you know, people's left beliefs in America, the CPUSA is the biggest left party in America, but there's still, you know, Trotskyist parties. There's still, you know, socialist parties of the like, you know, progressive era bent in existence. The IWW. IWW. Yeah. I mean, they're all like fairly small at the point at this point for you know, reasons, but they're, they exist, you know, and there's also, you know, just good old fashioned dumb libs, you know, <laughs> you can't get rid of them like cockroaches. And, you know, these people are all getting ensnared in this too. And um, basically the loyalty, this, this launches a whole trend. So, you know, Taff Hartley then forces, you know, more than 232,000 union organizers to sign similar loyalty oaths. Uh, companies begin demanding their workers sign. By 1950, 8 million workers are forced to sign yeah. loyalty oaths. Um, and again, like I said, the signing of these oaths, you know, you could say, oh, fuck it, just lie, right? Which, you know, of course, yeah, I mean, that's what a lot of people are doing. But 
if you get called out for lying on it, you can, not only can you get blacklisted, they can bring you up on perjury charges. And people were. And the thing is, all it would take to show that you'd lied on it was just somebody saying you're a communist, right? I mean, it is a full-fledged witch hunt. Like, when, once you're labeled, there's, there's nothing you can do is going to convince them that you're not, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, people were, were definitely screwed once they got that label as far as getting jobs or positions in government or even social ostracization. Yeah, yeah. And and that social, you know, being ostracized socially, I mean, a lot of times they mean that in the business world. And, you know, in uh, Labor's Untold Story, they talk about, guys who basically just had to leave entire fields you know like auto workers who like yeah literally could not work in the field of manufacturing anymore <laughs> and would have to you know just go try and their hands up being like a farmhand or something like that and you know if you want to imagine what that's like imagine putting 20 years into like a fairly intense trade you know learning all these very specific skill sets and then just being told no you actually can't do this anymore you know and it, of course, led to people, you know, led to people being forced down into poverty. It led to suicides, it, you know, and this is part of the disciplining mechanism is it's not just the workers getting punished. It's the other workers seeing those guys getting punished that disciplines them. Yeah. And so, you know, this this red scare, um, you know, it, it was applied to other things besides labor. Right. Um like other other social movements or you know a, any movement towards like mm-hmm. you know more more democracy or or equality was kind of equated to yeah, communism I, or red baited right yeah i mean if if you're in the you know very fledgling civil rights movement you know if you are black and think segregation is bad in the south uh guess what you are a communist right yeah. <laughs> if uh you um you know, I mean, literally just anything that is, like I said, if it's considered anti-business or anti-management, you know, which has, you know, that's a lot of social stuff, too. Yeah. Uh, you would be considered a communist. Now, one of the things McCarthy does. So McCarthy is going to really take up the mantle, <laughs> which is Senator Joe yeah. McCarthy from Wisconsin. He's really going to take up the mantle of this sort of red baiting campaign. Right. And and give his name to the era. Right. But um you know, he would go after political enemies. He would go after people in the entertainment industry. Uh, but he would also just hit everyday people. One of the groups he hit was people in the American uh, Foreign Services, particularly in the State Department, who he considered insufficiently uh, dedicated to American imperialism, right? Uh, in the st- with the State Department officials in particular, he uh, was very fond of accusing them all of being gay, uh, there's actually a very weird period in the 30s and 40s where Washington, D.C. is like the gayest town in America. <laughs> and oh. and again, it's one of those things like there is a touch of reality to it, a touch of uh, like there is a not lie part of it. Um, there's actually a book that came out very recently called The Lavender Scare that's all about this. But, you know, in doing this, you know, McCarthy was doing a few things. One saying that, look, we're going to have this very, you know, heteronormative form of American existence is the only acceptable one, right? Anything deviant of that is communist and therefore bad. Um, He also was 
doing this little sleight of hand, right? Where he's saying, you know, they're trying to create this image of capitalism, but they don't want to sell capitalism on its own terms because its own terms are bad. So capitalism now is freedom, right? Capitalism is family. And capitalism is also macho, right? It's a macho thing that men do. And, you know, those commies, they're a little gay, a little pink, you know? I mean, this is where pinkos and stuff like that comes from, right? Um, And this is also part of the whole thing you know i mean a big part of the homophobic push of the 50s and 60s is that it gets tied up into this new red scare you know um but yeah i mean it to give some of the rather uh you know i guess grosser or more cynical uses of the red scare too is i mean uh, there was a Maryland senator named Millard Tidings who, you know, was a political enemy of Joseph McCarthy, who he called out in hearings and essentially got kicked off of various committees. Oh. Uh, General George Marshall had criticized McCarthy, essentially, you know, I mean, very lightly, but essentially called him an idiot. And McCarthy got him forced out of the White House, right? Forced you know, out of uh, secret- his secretary of defense position. And McCarthy's not the only guy getting in on this because LBJ, there's a head of the Federal Power Commission named Leland Olds, who all the, you know, oil interests in Texas fucking hated and wanted to get rid of because he supported this thing called the Natural Gas Act of 1938, which controlled prices. And one of the first things LBJ does in the Senate is he starts calling Leland Olds a communist and blocks his reappointment to the Federal Power Commission. So, I mean, just to, just to give you some examples, to give you a taste of what the the, the experience is like in the forties and fifties. To be clear, like that is you know it was opportuni- opportunism mm-hmm. because you know bashing commies in the Senate was popular. It mm-hmm. wasn't completely just McCarthy and LBJ did it for a reason. It was to ingratiate himself with the conservative Southern bloc um, mm-hmm. and build his power in the Senate that way. We'll get into that in a, in a later podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and this is far reaching. I mean, you know, uh, and lots of people are building their careers, you know, Ronald Reagan, who's a very B list actor at the time, uh, basically invites himself to be a sympathetic witness for HUAC, at which point he begins naming names for everybody. He's very convincing because he's gotten himself to the head of the Screen Actors Guild. So he's essentially the head of the union and it's like, here's all my fellow union members who are communists. Oh, uh, Walt Disney comes up and starts naming names. Of course, uh, you know, I'm sure coincidentally he's in a labor dispute with his animators at the time. And wouldn't you know it, a bunch of them are communists. Um, you know, famously, I mean, in one of the just more cynical stories, Elia Kazan, uh, who's a director who, you know, probably nobody remembers anymore, but made the film on the waterfront, uh, you know, he goes up and starts naming names, uh, for Huac as a sympathetic witness. Uh, one of the names he gives is Arthur Miller, who's a very famous screenwriter who ends up getting blacklisted because of Kazan. After after Miller gets blacklisted, after Kazan essentially sells his fucking ass out, Kazan then steals Arthur Miller's screenplay for the movie On the Waterfront, puts in a bunch of anti-communist horse shit in it, and fucking <laughs> makes it as a movie. 
And the Academy gives it, I think, eight fucking Academy Awards. Wow. It still gets talked about as, oh, man, this is one of the best movies ever fucking made. All this kind of stuff. Um, Marlon Brando, who's actually the lead in On the Waterfront, uh, he gets contractually stuck in the movie after trying to get out of it and refuses all of his pay for the movie. And like, I guess like late in the life would refuse to say he was even in it. Like, like it wouldn't even admit he was in it. Uh, at one point, Elliot Kazan, I think it was in the nineties was given like a lifetime achievement award. And there were still some people in Hollywood that when he was given the award, uh, stood up and walked out <laughs> when he gave it. But yeah. But for the most part, you know, you can't hear it over the cheers, right? I mean, he built his career over just fucking over everyone around him and literally robbing them blind. I mean, just a real piece of shit. Uh, You know, other people get caught up in this. You know, Paul Robeson gets blacklisted. Langston Hughes gets fucking blacklisted, you know. Uh, And this has real effects. I mean, people are going to jail. The Hollywood 10, which is a group of 10 screenwriters who get accused of being communists, they all go to jail for a year apiece. Um, You know, people are committing suicide, like I said. I mean, it's really bad. Uh, Charlie Chaplin and Orson Welles both flee to Europe because they're afraid they're going to get called in front of (laughs) in front of HUAC and possibly imprisoned. Uh, it's 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 a real moment. And and again, to give you just a taste of what could get you on these lists, George Orwell, the you know, author uh, who hilariously wrote 1984 about people spying on you, literally handed over lists of suspected communists and fellow travelers <laughs> to the CIA. And in that, you know, the kind of thing that would get you labeled by Orwell as a communist, you know, Paul Robeson and George Padmore were both labeled as anti-communist by Orwell because they were quote, very anti-white, <laughs> you know, uh, John Steinbeck, you know, who was a rival to George Orwell was labeled as a communist because he was a quote, spurious writer, you know, Upton <laughs> Sinclair quote, very silly Tom Dryberg, an English Jew is what he described him impossible homosexual. Um, this was the kind of stuff that was going on right uh in that could you know i mean this could end your fucking career you know uh so mccarthy and others are kind of going after the entertainment industry right like hollywood uh Mm -hmm. especially like there there's a reason for that right like why why do you think that is yeah i mean they they sort of realize early on that uh that there is like cultural power is we- is real right i mean yeah. like they understand because these connections to uh when we talk about like national association of manufacturers the chamber of commerce when we talk about this propaganda campaign they're hiring the best pr firms in the country to run this right and these pr firms are telling them like look you know hollywood it sets a tone you know like we if we could get hollywood essentially on our side we could win a lot of people over. And of course, just like today, they're telling themselves these fantasies that Hollywood is basically, you know, uh, might as well be like Mal's living room or something. Uh, when in reality, it, it sucked <laughs> as much of that as it does now. But I mean, you know, they ran it, it, as much as it sucked then, they ran out what little talent there was and replaced, you know, uh, what good movies there were in, say, maybe the 30s, end up getting replaced by just an endless string of panic films you know red panic films so just to give you a taste of some of these amazing films uh we have the red menace in 1949 i married a communist in 1950 i was a communist for the fbi in 1951 uh tv shows like i led three lives 
uh, my favorite one, Biff Baker USA, about a buff CEO who uh, flies <laughs> around the world doing business deals and stopping communists along Hell the way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's sort of interesting. I mean, most of these films were flops. People didn't fucking want to watch this shit. It all sucked. Uh, but they made them anyways, right? And so there's this historian, Nora Sayre, who has this great summation of, of why these keep getting made. And so she writes, quote, For certain filmmakers, being asked to work on an anti-communist picture was like a loyalty test. If someone who was thought to be a communist refused to participate in the project, it was assumed that he must be a party member. So for some writers, directors, and actors, taking part in films such as I Married a Communist was rather like receiving a clearance. The number of movies concerning other social issues decreased drastically between 47 and 1954, although more than 50 anti-communist films were produced, right? So essentially, they're using Hollywood to narrow the public scope of like what the world is, what you know, yeah. is affecting them, and to essentially create a mania. <laughs> That's what it kind of comes down to. Yeah. I mean, and then it's interesting now that you know, the, these overtly anti-communist movies back then were just like flops, but they made so many of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, the propaganda campaign, you know, took place over like such a long amount of time. But like, I mean, movies, of course, everybody knows this, but like movies today contain like all sorts of like anti-communist or like imperialist propaganda and... Uh, we sort of, it's just there and people just sort of like accept it. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you could think about today, you know, for decades now, if you're, if you're to go look at the network lineups of dramas and even comedies at this point, how many of them are about cops, right? Yeah. And does that mean that people want to watch shit about cops? I mean, most of them fail. Most of them fail and yeah. they get canceled and everything like that. But that doesn't seem to ever limit the amount of, shows about cops you get well every once in a while i mean we don't get it at all anymore but say in the 90s you get a show like roseanne that was about working class family that is shown as having like actual financial issues and stuff like that that could be wildly successful but does it get more do you get more of that and the answer is of course no right <laughs> you know once it's off the air it probably is going to get replaced by a show about cops right and you yeah. know it, the thing is, is like, why is that the way it is? It's like, because that's the way they want it to be. You know, people make decisions, right? The world doesn't just happen. People are making choices. And at networks, they're making a choice. They'd rather fail with a cop show than succeed with a show that maybe has a pro working class message or, you know, anti cop message. How about that? So going back to, you know, this, this cultural, you know, this culture of anti-communism we've kind of been talking about, um, there's also this, this whole genre of uh, films uh, called, you know, the, the cowboys and Indians genre. Uh, how, do, how do you think that ties into all this? Yeah, I mean, so the, the other great contribution to the culture of the 50s is, Cowboys and Indians films, and then uh, films of space aliens, you know, uh, giant monster flicks, right? And the whole point of these films is, again, to create this sort of paranoia regarding uh, people's safety. Like, so in the, in, the, in the idea of the Cowboys and Indians films, you as the cowboy, right, are this lone bastion of civilization, of American values, of 
individualism and independence and gumption or whatever other horse shit, right? And you're being attacked by this faceless other. What is the Indian's motive? Where are they even from, right? Like you never even see where they come from. They just come out of the earth seemingly. And the answer is, who cares? It doesn't matter. They they have no motive other than destruction, right? What is uh, the motive of uh, the giant Gila monster uh, that is destroying the city, right? You know, the other great genre of the time. And the answer, of course, is there is no motive <laughs> for it, right? Again, it's just they have a, a wanton destruction that's somehow inherent in them. And this is a message that's, you know, getting put into people's brain. It's the, you know, we're, we're civilization and outside our gates is barbarism, right? And we have to arm ourselves for barbarism. And this justifies, you know, any war that you do, this justifies any, uh, you know, uh, expansion they make, this justifies any cruelty that you engage in, right? Because it's all to protect uh, humanity, right? It's all to, you know, versus the barbarous other. And so, you know, Here's a here's this excerpt from this uh, story of Tom Englehart, right? He, you know, he notices he's talking about cowboys and Indians. He says all the films portrayed uh, the non-white world through the eyes of the besieged white colonizer. He explains this, or Englehart explains this through an analysis of an archetypal scene in the cowboy genre: a circle of covered wagons, or sometimes a fort or camp wherein humanity rests warm and secure. Suddenly on the periphery emerge the screeching savages to kill the humans for no reason other than to quench their own bloodthirsty propensities. The white men ready their rifles, knowing what to do, exterminate the attackers. This scenario forces us to flip history on its head. It makes the intruder flip places with the intruded upon. Although in real life, it was the Indians who faced ruthless invaders ready to exterminate them with uncompromising violence. In Hollywood, it was Indians who must invade, intrude, break upon the circle, a circle which contains all those whom the film has already certified as human. Or as John Wayne summed up the racism in the film The Searchers, there's humans and then there's Comanches, right? And this basically is going to be, it's going to create the vision in which Americans see the world, right? So we can talk of things like, the aggression of the Vietnamese in Vietnam, right? We talk about invasion, that we're in a defensive war in Korea. The Koreans have invaded Korea and we have to fly all the way around the world to stop it, right? Uh, The Vietnamese have invaded Vietnam and we must stop them. The Cubans have taken over Cuba. It must be stopped, (laughs) you know? And the only way that this makes any sense to people is if you've already primed them with this, vision of the world that we're a besieged people that we're constantly under attack and that we have to engage in the wildest you know defensive maneuvers in order to protect ourselves and you know that's how you get people genuinely scared of well if we let the vietnamese have vietnam then what's next (laughs) yeah it's the only way in which that makes sense and hollywood is building that out and continues to do it to this day i mean that's what every space invasion movie is about that's what every superhero movie is about yeah i was gonna say the marvel movies yeah it's about the lengths that it's why the military funds all those movies by the way it's the lengths that we have to go to in order to you know uh 
keep our civilization afloat. That's what that whole Twitter debate was uh, recently about. You're going to compare the U.S. to Taliban and Hamas? Like, yeah, we've killed millions upon millions (laughs) upon millions more people. But we did it for, but when we do wrong things, we do it for the right reasons. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, we have humanity. They don't. That's that's what these people mean to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, so over time, we, we also see the uh, CIA and the FBI get in on this too. This sort of like anti-communist culture war. Uh, how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, like the CIA are all these sort of feet, like, you know, um, you know, uh, Ivy League guys, you know, half of them went to Yale, the other half went to Harvard, right? And a lot of them are liberal arts majors and things like that, right? And they're very interested in this culture war, right? And so the CIA, the FBI, uh, and to a large degree, the British Information Research Department, also known as the IRD, essentially joined together uh, to put forward this sort of rival ideology to communism, or as the IRD's Ernest Bevin put it, we cannot hope uh, successfully to repel communism only by disparaging it on material grounds. We must put forward a rival ideology to communism. Or as the Americans and the CIA put it, uh, working through their front group, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, uh, you know, the purpose of the propaganda campaign is, quote, to challenge egalitarian political theory and show the persistence and inevitability of elite rule, right? And what they end up doing is they first begin purging uh, libraries, right? So one of the things that people, you know, might not know is that if you are an American abroad, uh, if you, you know, are somebody who reads English abroad, You have access to a massive wealth of State Department libraries put up by the U.S. Information Agency or the USIA. Um, They immediately start purging books out of those libraries. So, uh, you know, writers like Howard Fast, Langston Hughes, Herman Melville, all that's gone. Jean-Paul Sartre, W.B. Du Bois, Helen Keller, gone. Uh, hilariously, they also throw out books from Albert Einstein uh, because he was considered too close to socialism. So you want to yeah. learn about the theory of relativity? Sorry, it's gone. And the the dramatic nature of this is that they went from essentially uh, shipping out, they had 119,000 titles a year they would ship out. They went from that to 314 by 1953. I mean, they basically just are, have gotten rid of books, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, it's it's really astonishing. And they weren't just interested in stuff like, I mean, that's all the obvious shit, like, oh, they're burning the books or whatever. But they also got invested in, like, lots of other weird places, like the art world. So, yeah. So there was this whole story uh, you could read uh, from this historian, Francis Stoner Sanders has been writing about this forever. But... Um, Basically, the CIA created the genre of abstract expressionism, or as they like to call it, quote, free enterprise art. Um, the, you know, coming out of the 1930s, the most popular art form in the world was socialist realism. You could see it everywhere. Mm. Uh, you could still see it on, in you know, public buildings sometimes today. Uh, by far the most popular art form that existed. Uh, but, you know, and this is quoting Sanders, 
you know, for the CIA, it spoke to a specifically anti-communist ideology. This is talking about abstract expressionism. The ideology of freedom, a free enterprise, non-figurative and politically silent. It was the very antithesis to socialist realism. Um, and, you know, art, the art scene loved it. So, you know, contemporary art critic Harold Rosenberg, uh, you know, hailing the arrival of abstract expressionism, it, quote, it's a political choice of giving up politics. Uh, the artist Paul Berlin saying, finally, art that is aloof from the political left. Um, you know, art, cl- art critic Clement Greenberg, uh, you know, social the rise of socialist realism, uh, with the rise of socialist realism, the avant-garde had been, quote, abandoned by those to whom it actually belongs, our ruling class. Uh, but abstract expressionism, of course, was going to bring it back. And the CIA, I mean, they weren't just like telling people, hey, guys, you should get into this abstract expressionism thing. It's cool. Yeah. Uh, they went way further than that. They found a washed up alcoholic whose best years were long behind him in Jackson Pollock and just started pumping money to him, uh, probably killing him in the end by allowing him to buy even more booze. Uh, they went to MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in uh, New York. And they started pumping money into MoMA so that they would start putting on lavish events and big shows of abstract expressionist art. When, you know, Henry Luce from Time Life, who's a very important figure at this time, uh, wrote a letter in his, you know, paper sort of viciously attacking uh, abstract expressionism as, you know, a deviant art or whatever. Uh, the CIA basically explained to him, hey, this is uh, part of the Cold War. We're all on it. And he changed the editorial policy of Time Life magazine so that they would now feature abstract expressionism, giving it <laughs> lavish spreads and things like that. Now, yeah, it, I mean, they really created an art form, right? I mean, they gave it, they found something that nobody wanted and then shoved it down everyone's throats. Yeah. And, and I it, mean, go ahead. Go for it. Oh, I was just going to say, like, I, I don't know much about art necessarily but like during this period and beyond like there is this whole kind of shift away like especially Mm -hmm. in academia as well from you know modernism which kind of basically says that you know we can have like a grand you know theory of change that you know people can do something collectively and um you know Mm-hmm. shape society by doing that uh, to this kind of uh, theory of postmodernism where it's like, uh, you know, everything can be deconstructed. Um, you know, things are, are too complicated for anybody to have like some grand, you know, theory yeah. of change. So kind of like what, what's, what's the point? Um yeah, I mean, uh, postmodernism's sort of destruction of the meta narrative. Uh, you know, POMO is the most insufferable yeah. people on earth like to call it. <laughs> uh, you know, it, its origin is actually in the purging of the French Academy after the uprising in 69. Um, mm-hmm. Its other place of origin is in the American Academy after the purging of academics in the 1970s. And you know, the reason for its popularity is that various academic journals, many of which funded by the CIA, were perfectly willing to publish it incessantly. Yeah. Uh, and so give those people publishing credits. 
The other value of it is just like abstract expressionism is that it's very specifically in its rejection of meta narratives, apolitical, you know, which did not escape the attention of the people who are writing it, who had all seen, you know, people that they knew like Angela Davis, Michael Parenti, uh, H. Bruce Franklin get kicked out of the fucking Academy, like, or have their careers severely, you know, uh, retarded in the case of Angela Davis, you know, after seeing that, they realize, you know, a lot of people in the Academy, who's which is full of fucking cowards, uh, which anybody who's ever been at a college knows, basically said, fuck it. I don't want any part of what those people are getting. Uh, how can I write about something that nobody's ever going to read and will have no impact on anything, but will still somehow, like, give me credibility in the academic world? And postmodernism checked every single box, right? And, yeah, yeah. And speaking of Angela Davis, like I was going to say, like I went, I'm a banana slug. I went to UC Santa Cruz and it has Mm -hmm. this reputation, this like a pretty radical school and granted, like, you know, there were a couple of classes I took that were pretty cool, but you know, beyond, beyond that, like most of the classes I took as a humanities major were like, uh, you know, like Roland Barthes, like death of the author or some Mm -hmm. like, debate on you know deconstructing whatever essay between uh derrida and some other french asshole (laughs) like post like it was it was like almost all like not not all but it was a lot of a lot of postmodernism, even at the supposedly like radical you know like communist school yeah yeah and i mean you know i went to a fourth tier or maybe even fifth tier uh, college in Texas Tech. And because of that, it just had all these like old professors that nobody wanted. And so I weirdly was never exposed to postmodernism. But mm-hmm. I, you know, was in a relationship with somebody who was going to the University of Texas at San Antonio, which at the time was a burgeoning, uh, you know, four year college, right? And had a lot of young professors who were, uh, let's just say career oriented and had not been beaten down. <laughs> all the ones i had who were extremely into it and you know and it's not to say that there's zero value in anything that uh, yeah. the post-artist authors ever wrote but it is to say that you cannot divorce the just like there's not zero value in abstract expressionism but you can't divorce the success of these tendencies of these fields from the actual conditions in which they gain that success right and yeah. It is undeniable that the French Academy was purged in the late 60s, and all of a sudden these guys became popular in the French Academy, just as it's undeniable that, you know, the American Academy was purged in the 70s, and all of a sudden this caught on. And I think if you understand the actual historical situation and what was happening, it all of a sudden makes sense why all these, you know, professors in the late 70s were like, you know, fuck it, I'm just going to do this stupid shit. Uh, Because, you know, look, the, the... yeah, I hate to tell people your professors are not uh they're not heroes, they're not anybody who's gonna stand up for anything. They are cowards. <laughs> and they wanna get it, that tenure. Yeah, you know, they wanna get that uh comfortable lifestyle, be 
almost rich. Not yeah, quite rich, yeah, but almost rich. It's the coward's way out. And yeah, they, they dangle a lot of carrots in front of them. But more importantly, they dangle an axe above their head. And that axe, written on the side of it, if this is a Garrison cart, a Ben Garrison cartoon, right on the side of the axe, you can write, having to get a real job on it. And there's nothing that any of them are more scared of. <laughs> All right? <laughs> you know, I have a lot of academic friends. I love them. But uh, even they would admit that this is that's the re- actual reality of academia. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, you know, postmodernism comes out of it and it has essentially the same kind of, you know, uh, connection to, uh, you know, the Cold War that like abstract expressionism has. And it has the same response from regular people, which is that regular people just pull away from the academy. Right. Uh, you know, we talk about how come there isn't a. You know, there were, it's hard to imagine now, but in the 60s, there were American academics who were important on the left, right? Who were like big names, who could get into newspapers, who could give big talks and stuff like that. And that really doesn't exist. Like, we don't have public intellectuals anymore. And a big reason is because the intellectual style is completely incomprehensible to anybody that hasn't gone to an elite four-year school. Yeah. Like, uh, there is, I mean, just to give a quick example, there we were doing in town, uh, DSA was doing a reading group around the, uh, the, the Jacobin, like what is socialism little pamphlet book they had. Yeah. Yeah. I remember this. And in one of the, uh, chapters, which I remember I very specifically being at this meeting, the chapter was, um, you know, is Marxism just, uh, like white European shit. Right. Yeah. And the problem was there wasn't any academics in the room. Right. So it's just like regular people <laughs> really have like real jobs and shit. And all of them are like, I, I don't understand that. Like, what are they talking about? Like what, what I like, I didn't get this thing at all. And I remember yeah. I, I was launching this like long explanation of like, okay, the Academy used to say that Marx, you, you couldn't like Marx because he's too Jewish. Then that you couldn't say that anymore because of the Holocaust. And they said, well, he's an Asiatic and that's why you can't like him. And then that got too gross. So now it's that he's too racist or whatever. Uh, And like, like, but I don't get it. Like China and like Vietnam. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't make any fucking sense. And then finally, I just like, I was trying to like explain this. And then finally, I just stopped myself and I said, look, the only thing you need to know is this is the kind of stupid shit that you need about eight years of graduate school to actually believe. <laughs> like, you know, like yeah. so, somebody would have to like literally beat you in the fucking head for a decade for you to be dumb enough to actually believe this. So don't worry about it. Just skip the chapter. Actually, that's, that's the actual <laughs> answer. Just don't worry about it. It's fine. Just skip it. It's, it's a thing stupid people believe who aren't going to help you anyways. So it's fine. <laughs> Just keep. Yeah. Moving. <laughs> I mean, the thing is that that does come up, like, especially like activists or like like dsa context you just have to <laughs> tell people look like look at all these uh countries that have you know socialist governments or <laughs> yeah. have practiced like marxist leninism and taken power like uh yeah, yeah. you have a lot of examples you have pink tide movements you have kerala you have yeah. yeah, there's just so many examples. Yeah, look at all these uh, dumb crackers like Pol- Patrice Lumumba and Mao Zedong and Ho Chi yeah. Minh. Yeah. You know? I mean, just embarrassing. Uh, there's a general rule of thumb for our listeners. You should ask yourself, whenever you hear something that sounds really fucking stupid at, about the left, you should ask yourself, is this something only people in America believe? 
And when you ultimately find out the answer is yes, go ahead yeah. and discard it. All right. Just disregard yeah. it out of hand. <laughs> Just throw it right in yeah. the fucking trash. All right. And the reason for that is what we're talking about right here is because the reason you believe it is because of these campaigns. Um, so, you know, to, to sum up, I mean, there was this, uh, there's this author named Timothy Brennan. He actually wrote a very good book about postmodernism. But he has a section that I just want to read that's actually very good about, you know, he talks about, you know, uh, the struggle, you know, with the public and abstract expressionism, right? And he says, you know, according to accepted wisdom, the United States could not be freer of a socialist realist sensibility. But anyone who has traveled the country would immediately recognize the aesthetic as a common form of public working class art under American capitalism. Could it be that it actually is a working class aesthetic, just as the advocates of socialist realism had claimed all along? Vulgar and homiletic realism is vulgar to those from a fleshier, more delicate training. But rather than a ludicrous ideology forced onto a docile, retarded public, socialist realism turns out to be a rupture in taste between those whose hands are calloused and those who take their literary agents out to lunch at expensive restaurants. And as if to put a point on it, Tom Braden, who is the CIA agent, CIA agent in charge of making abstract expressionism a thing, uh, summed it up his own way, which is, quote, I've forgotten, you know, in explaining why the working class was not moved by abstract art, says, I've forgotten which pope it was who commissioned the Sistine Chapel, but I suppose that if I had, if it had been submitted to a vote of the Italian people, there would have been many, many negative responses. Mm-hmm. It takes a pope or somebody with a lot of money to recognize art. You have always to battle your own ignoramuses, or to put it more politely, people who just don't understand. And I think that's the actual reality is that one is when the CIA says they like abstract expressionism because it reinforces the idea of hierarchy and class cleavages and stuff. This is what they're talking about. Like, we want a high culture that represents the interest of those who have time to become invested in that high culture. Yeah. And anything less than that must be for the animals below us. And, you know, it becomes this sort of cultural signifier. And again, as if to put a third button on this, uh, the biggest event in the New York social scene, which basically makes it the biggest event almost in the American ruling class of social scene scene is at MoMA. You know, it is the big party at MoMA. They throw every year where the who's who of the American ruling class shows up to have their picture taken and schmooze and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, a big reason why that is the case is that, you know, to get on the board of MoMA, which, you know, a Koch brother, you know, (laughs) at one point about four years ago, there was a Rockefeller and a Koch brother, both on the board of MoMA, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you know, it is a truly cursed institution. Again, not because art in general sucks or anything like that, but the way the ruling class operates is it creates these organizations in which they can coordinate. And, you know, the NAM is one of those chambers of commerce are one of those and boards of nonprofits are very definitely one of those places. And because of this whole operation, the MoMA became one of the boards to be on. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know all that. Um, What to to circle back to um, academia a little bit. um, The CIA is kind of also like uh, trying to, you know, directly like. you know, uh, encourage anti-communist academics, like not just 
necessarily like postmodernism, right? But also like, uh, you know, journals basically like created by the CIA. Yeah, I mean, they built dozens of academic journals, right? Uh, the New Statesman and the Partisan Review being just two of them. Um, you know, none of the none of them could sell any copies, like none of them would exist on their own. But of course, the CIA is funding them. And of course, the CIA would purchase, you know, entire print runs and distribute them at universities and, you know, various other events. You know, and if you're willing to play the part, you could get, you know, wined and dined, right? So, you know, uh, Hannah Arendt tells the story of visiting a CIA villa in northern Italy that they used to invite important academics and cultural figures to. Uh, and she says, quote, you feel as though you are suddenly lodged in a kind of Versailles. The place has 53 servants. The staff is presided over by a kind of head waiter who dates from the time of the Principessa and has face and uh, the face and manner of a great gentleman of 15th century Florence. You know, they're flying people all around the world. I mean, they're, you know, I mean, they were funding, you know, jazz tours in places like Egypt and stuff like that. Um, and the thing is, is that not everybody who was doing this was 100% aware of what exactly was going on, <laughs> what they're yeah. doing. Uh, a lot of them were. But in order to get the money, it was very apparent that certain things could be said and certain things could not be said. Um, and, you know, if you wanted to uh, get this extra CIA money or exposure, which would help your academic career, you would have to write about the Soviet Union or working class politics in a very particular way. Um, and this really has continued up into this day. It is a very open secret that if you are a uh, China historian or, you know, if you're studying, you know, uh, uh, any language spoken in China, that the easiest way to get funding is through the CIA. Uh, it's very, you know, I, I read a Russian uh, professor, uh, he's a political science professor who did modern Russia, and he was at the University of Texas in Austin. And he basically said all the grants to do Russian language work uh, at UT were all CIA grants. So basically, you either Holy shit. you either fucking had the CIA pay for it or you did it. You paid for it yourself, which, you know, uh, anybody who's been in academia knows these are you can't pay for them yourself. Um, yeah. You know. At the time, you know, so at this time, too, the CIA is basically operating out of a wide amount of just front organizations and things like that. Uh, they're behind the Fairfield Foundation. They have the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Endowment, all running money for them. So they're all funneling money for the CIA. Uh, there was an investigation in 1976, the CIA, uh, that revealed that CIA penetration into the foundations was so deep that between 1963 and 1966, of 700 grants over $10,000 given out by 164 foundations, at least 108 involved partial or complete CIA funding. In the field of international activities, CIA funding accounted for half of all grants put forward by these same 164 foundations. And and again, you know, for those who are, you know, thankfully, uh, blessedly not part of uh, academia, if you are an academic uh, who does anything other than like American shit, right? So American history, American literature, whatever, uh, you generally have to travel abroad. So if you're a uh, or so uh, our friend of the show, uh, Matt Van Dyne, who does Chinese history, has had to spend years in China 
working on his dissertation and his research and things like that. You know, maybe three or four years of his academic career spent in China. All that gets paid via foundation grants and things like that through, you know, what you uh, hilariously call funding in the business. But, uh, you know, huge chunks of that are literally just from the CIA, whether you know it or not, are just from oh the God. CIA, right? Um, and it's and it's one of those things of if you want that money to keep rolling, well, you got to give them results, right? I mean, there is a connection between paying for something and getting what you want. And uh, the CIA has been, you know, uh, very active in that sense. And along with that, they, you know, I mean, there's a very famous uh, Soviet historian, uh, definitely historian in quotation marks, uh, Robert Conquest, who was an actual member of the IRD, which is the British uh, Information Research Division that we talked about earlier that worked with the CIA on these projects, um, who, you know, spent his entire life writing comically bad histories of the Soviet Union, usually you know, at the behest of weird foundation money that was like coming out of some black box. And, you know, you get the, you get the point that like some of these guys, their academic career, it's not just early funding when they're doing their research. Uh, their whole academic career is basically built off of being CIA, you know, being an asset essentially. Um, it's uh, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> Yeah. And so, I mean, a, a lot of this is like not easy to find out, right? Like they're funneling no. money through all these foundations just to avoid public accountability, right? Yeah. And I mean, lots of people in the late 60s in particular were pointing out that like, huh, it's weird that, you know, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation is so interested in Soviet studies or whatever, right? You know, yeah. like point out that there seem to be these odd connections between foundation funding and the interests of the American security state. But, you know, it's all black box, right? I mean, this is why foundations are great. This is why philanthropies are great. You know, hint, hint for a certain philanthropy in the city. It's why they're great for these kind of things is that it's a black box that nobody can see inside. And it always has the built-in excuse of, look, this is just philanthropy. These are just, you know, look, the Rockefellers, they're just interested in, uh, you know, building a, a better world or whatever horseshit. And it really did take it a completely unprecedented Senate investigation into the CIA that revealed all sorts of dark secrets uh, that, by the way, we're never going to have again. Uh, to reveal that basically, oh shit, like one of the things that was revealed was that like some enormous number, thousands of journalists in America were directly on the CIA payroll who were just writing for local newspapers, right? You know, Uh, that, yeah, that they were using these foundations, again, with big names, Rockefellers, Carnegie, et cetera, but hundreds of others. They're using these foundations to essentially launder their money you know, and give it to clients, right? I mean, so they were essentially developing assets all over the cultural world that people would probably be a little upset about, like that uh, the CIA gave money to Richard Wright, the novelist, to tour Europe. People would probably be really upset about that kind of shit if they actually heard, knew what it was, and that's why the CIA hid it from you, right? <laughs> and uh, it, it really it took a Senate investigation and a really unprecedented political atmosphere to find out some of that stuff. Uh, good luck getting that again. Yeah, not until we have President Joshua Collins who will you know, put <laughs> political pressure on the guys. He's free to run. Okay, he is free <laughs> right now to run. So we got to do it. We got to get it going. 
Josh for Brady. Wherever, wherever you are, we miss you. <laughs> um, just, just to kind of uh, tie off this last section, this whole you know cultural program of the CIA, uh, you know, Chamber of Commerce, uh, the Second Red Scare, it even extends to cookies and communist little girls, right? Yeah, I mean, again, I think sometimes people, they really don't get the full, uh, the breadth of this, right? I mean, they are concerned about everything. And to give you an idea of the atmosphere, uh, the Girl Scouts used to have a marriage a merit badge <laughs> that was called the One World Merit Badge. And of course, it was decided that this was a wholly communist message. All right, because a true capitalist yeah. knows that you know the the world is an imperial dogfight, and you can only back your own country. The idea one world that that means uh, they believe in one big union. That means yeah. the Girl Scouts are IWW, international solidarity. Don't want to hear it, right? Yeah. And so the uh, the American Legion, which has long been a front for these sort of Cold War battles, although now it's just as too, it's, it got too elderly and kind of aged itself out. But it used to actually be a very active and uh, psychotic group of people, by the way. Um, but the American Legion launched this huge campaign about the Girl Scouts, you know, uh, and basically forced them to change the merit badge in 1954 from one world to my world which i don't think there's a better like metaphor for what the cia is trying or what the american state was trying to get across to its population it's not one world with all of us it's my world (laughs) pretty good yeah i think that that's uh (laughs) that that that's a good way to end this section and um you know move move from maybe the the cultural to the physical so uh, along with you know all of this uh cultural warfare and propaganda you know there there's actual you know physical repression going on right uh yeah i mean you know it's not enough you know this is kind of this is always one of those funny things that comes up in policing about like the debate over community police versus militarized police mm-hmm. and what people don't understand is Actually, both is what's needed, right? There are they are two sides of the same coin. They function in tandem, right? And the same thing with propaganda and the stick, right? And it's one thing to propagandize people, but you also are going to have to beat the shit out of some of them. And that's immediately what they start doing. So immediately once the war is over, you know, in 46, they revive the Smith Act of 1940. Again, this is one of these acts of Congress that was passed basically with Nazism. I mean, that was the frontward facing explanation was that, hey, we need to make it illegal for people to uh, advocate the overthrow of America because like there's Nazis in our midst who are doing that. Right. And of course, uh, I don't know that like really there was a few Germans they like threw in a, in a uh, camp outside of uh, uh, Fredericksburg and Santa here in Texas, um, you know, that, that were brought in under the Smith act, but it was never like particularly aggressively enforced in the U S uh, but after the war, 
oh, you bet they got interested in it. And, you know, so uh, more than 140 members of the CPUSA were officially charged with uh, Smith Act violations. They eventually took it to court and the Supreme Court decided six to two that adherence to the principles of Marxism by itself was defined as sedition. So the very act of believing in Marxism or advocating Marxism uh, would... uh, essentially legally defined you as seditious and subject to arrest under the Smith Act. Uh, In 1950, they passed the McCarran Internal Security Act. Uh, This allows, and by the way, it's still, you know, as far as I know, it's still on the books, but allows for the internment of uh, dissidents in the case of a national emergency. And the thing that was terrified about this is the FBI immediately started creating roles, thousands of names on roles, Uh, of people that they were going to put in concentration camps the second a state of emergency was called. Uh, Were these people, uh, you know, former Ukrainian fascists from the OUN brought over by the CIA? Were they uh, Polish concentration camp guards uh, brought in from this by the CIA? Uh, Were they Nazi scientists also brought in by the CIA? No, they were labor organizers and people who were deemed uh, insufficiently enthusiastic about capitalism, right? Yeah. And just thousands and thousands of names were put on these lists. And it's one of those things of like, oh, well, uh, they didn't do it. So what, is, you know, what does that mean? It's like, well, the, the McCarran Act was based off of what the U.S. had done in the Philippines during the occupation of the Philippines in the Spanish-American War. Uh, which is they made giant lists of everybody that was considered, you know, subversive to the occupation and then, you know, used a, you know, Reichstag fire style event to justify rounding them all up and putting them in concentration camps, killing, I mean, by concentration camps, in the case of the Philippines, I mean, they literally like starved them to death in these fucking camps, killed hundreds of thousands of people. Um, One of those fun things that they never tell you about in American history. Um, But the FBI literally creates their radical database based off of this operation in the Philippines. The guy who is creating all this documentation and stuff and you know, creating these lists becomes Jagger Hoover's right-hand man. And that's exactly what the FBI goes about doing. And the McCarran Internal Security Act essentially gives them the right to now act on it, you know, if they so, you know, choose, right? So the the FBI is also doing some relational organizing right they believe in the value of organizing so they encourage people to start building some lists of their own yeah i mean (laughs) they create uh so there's this amazing excerpt from a 1950s grade school textbook called exploring american history right and it goes like this uh quote The FBI urges Americans to report directly to its offices any suspicions that may uh, they may have about communist activity on the part of their fellow Americans. The FBI is expertly trained to sift out the truth of such reports under the laws of our free nation. When Americans handle their suspicions in this way, rather than by gossip and publicity, they're acting in line with American traditions. So, I mean, they were creating a generation of snitches, right? Uh, yeah. Who would rat out their parents for what they perceived to be uh, communist activity, keeping in mind, as we've talked about all along, communist activity could be, 
you know, just saying, hey, I don't think uh, black people deserve to just be shot in the streets in Alabama. Right. You know, uh, being anti lynching was communist activity at this point. Right. Uh, again, I don't think that uh, my boss should, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think the boss should be allowed to just remove all the safety guards from the saws and the shop. Yeah. <laughs> it would be considered communist activity. Right. Uh, I mean, really uh, uh, chilling stuff. And, you know, in a drive at home, you know, in 1954, they passed this thing called the Communist Control Act. And it literally makes just being a member of the CPUSA illegal or supporting them financially illegal. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, they're. This is part. I mean, when Bernays says, like, we're going to engineer, you know, or manufacture consent, uh, the other part of manufacturing it is the, is always the hammer. Right. And that's what they're developing. Yeah, not just soft power, but I don't, I don't know if this is the correct term, but hard power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's both always simultaneously. And of course, you know, the FBI's diligent work in sussing out radicals and you know, tracking them is going to lead to the creation of COINTELPRO in 1956, yeah. uh, you know, which basically begins monitoring and attacking you know, any organization it deems insufficiently, you know, pro-capitalist, insufficiently behind the Cold War. That includes the CPUSA, but also includes groups like the Students for Democratic Society, SNCC, Black Student Unions, uh, the American Indian Movement. Literally, I mean, the list goes on and on. Uh, Just to give an idea of the wide net that they would cast for, you know, monitoring people, you know, prior to Ernest, Ernest ugh, prior to Ernest Hemingway's suicide in 1961, uh, he had been complaining to his friends that the FBI was following him and tapping his phone, and they all just thought he was just paranoid. You know, oh, he's an alcoholic, yeah. he's paranoid, whatever. Um, turns out that was all actually true. So his file was released in the 1980s, and it turns out the FBI had been following him, had tapped his phone, and had a really keen interest in him because during the Second World War, he had tried to form an anti-fascist spy ring. So the reason why the FBI was following this man and harassing him was that during the Second World War, he tried to help the Allies defeat the Nazis, which the <laughs> FBI saw as insufficiently patriotic to the American cause, and then proceeded to harass him until his eventual suicide. Um, yeah, I mean, I did a, a, re- a little, like, report on, like, the life of Ernest Hemingway uh, when I was a kid, and I feel like th- these types of facts were like not readily available. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that and that he was, you know, uh, a friend to Cuba. Mm-hmm. Like he yeah. liked to hang out in Cuba with uh, Castro and I think Che. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, U.S. was actually U.S. I mean, there was a lot of like Cuban tourism or you know U.S. tourism to Cuba prior to the revolution. And, you know, like my grandparents on my mom's side, he used to go to Cuba to gamble because like all Midwesterners, like degenerate gamblers, uh, even they were like, yeah, that Batista guy sucks. And like Castro is fine, whatever, you know, <laughs> like, like good for the yeah. Cubans. And, you know, I, I think there was a lot of that opinion uh, that existed. And of course, the FBI was there to uh, try and stamp it out as best they could, um, you know, and to give you, a, you know, some more idea of the scope, I mean, 
you know, beginning in 1957, the FBI began monitoring Martin Luther King. They tapped his phone, read his mail, attempted to blackmail him with charges of infidelity, and even tried to convince him to commit suicide. Uh, Stanford professor H. Bruce Franklin, uh, the FBI planted newspaper stories using, you know, friendly journalists uh, in the San Francisco Chronicle designed to discredit him. They launched a campaign at his college to have him fired, which Stanford eventually did in 1972, despite the fact that he was a tenured professor. You could do like a whole podcast on like what a like creepy weirdo uh, J. Edgar Hoover is. Just oh, yeah. uh, a side note, but yeah. And the thing about Hoover is this was his intention for the FBI from the very beginning. Uh, this is the first work that he had the FBI doing. I mean, the FBI literally is a political police department. Like it doesn't do anything else really, uh, you know, other than burn down, uh, you know, compounds in Waco. It really doesn't fucking function very well at anything else. I mean, it's always funny when people are like, the FBI is on it. They're great crime solvers. Like fucking show me the receipts <laughs> on that one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, they also, you know, obviously pursued a wide variety of tactics to break up the CPUSA, one of which, which, you know, conservatives complain about this all the time, but this actually happens to people on the left, was they had the IRS repeatedly audit suspected uh, Communist Party members as a you know harassment technique, right? Uh, they used to send anonymous letters and phone calls that were made to CP leaders spreading disinformation in the hopes of causing rifts and splits in the organization. Um, they aided the Trotskyist Socialist Workers Party in its efforts to poach CP members. Uh, and one of the funnier things that they tried to do was in the late 50s, early 60s, they tried to instigate a war between the CPUSA and the Italian Mafia in New York. <laughs> uh. Forgetting that uh, the Italian Mafia was always more Tony Soprano than it was uh, any like movie version of it. <laughs> yeah. So They probably talked about it a lot, but mainly just sat and ate sandwiches. But, uh, sure. I mean, instead so of give a breadth of this, you know, of what we know of COINTELPRO, which, by the way, is nowhere near probably all that they did. What we know, we only have from essentially stolen documents from the FBI. Uh, between 1956 and 1971, the FBI engaged in at least 2,200 COINTELPRO actions. Uh, they placed 2,300 warrantless phone taps, at least 697 bugs, and with the help of the CIA, intercepted at least 57,846 pieces of mail. So, you know, COINTELPRO ran the whole gamut. They were reading everybody's mail. They were intercepting phone calls. They were bugging your house and they were even murdering people. So, you know, Fred Hampton, of course, one of the most famous victims of uh, COINTELPRO. Uh, there was an SDS member in Chicago that interrupted an FBI agent who was breaking into the SDS office. The FBI, the FBI agent then hit him in the head with a fucking hammer and basically the guy ended up brain damaged for life. Um you know, just real fucking sick shit. They tried to kill Geronimo Pratt uh, immediately after the assassination of Fred Hampton. They tried to assassinate the leader of the Los Angeles Black Panther Party. They essentially fought a war against AIM in uh, rural America where nobody could see firing 50 caliber rifles into fucking the homes of the poorest people in the country, um, killing many. Um, I mean, really, really disgusting shit. You know, to add on to all this, I mean, we've talked about a lot of these official organizations that pop up at this point and their deeds, right? Uh, but one of the ones that's worth bringing up as well is the John Birch Society. To talk about, you know, there, there's always this belief 
that, you know, these radical right wing extremist groups just come out of nowhere and are somehow the products of like an anti liberal tradition and all this. And the John Birch Society is like the, you know, the version of it, right? Like the example, right? Uh, they, uh, they would call them, you know, country rednecks. Uh, they would say that, oh, you know, Richard Hofstadter, that they're people that just can't, you know, come to grips with our urbanizing uh, society, right? And all this kind of shit. The John Birch Society, the its whole existence comes about because Robert Welch was working for the NAM on the propaganda campaigns in the late 40s. Like, it is literally a spinoff of the National Association of Manufacturers. At its, oh, wow. At its opening... Uh, sort of at its opening meeting in 1958 uh robert welch basically gave a speech which robert welch was the ceo uh he had retired at that point was the ceo of an industrial firm in uh ohio i believe but he gave a speech to 11 millionaires asking for funding to create the john birch society three of them were former nam presidents uh he told them at the meeting we are living in America today in such a fool's paradise as the people of China lived in nearly 20 years ago, as the people of Czechoslovakia lived in a dozen years ago, as the people of North Vietnam lived in five years ago, and as the people of Iraq lived in only yesterday. Um, it's how he opened the meeting. Um, from there, they went on to, you know, obviously concoct every amount of uh, theory and propaganda about the communist takeover of the U.S., all of which are still repeated today, like the fluoride in your drinking water is making you gay or making you communist. Uh, they were big purveyors of the Christmas, uh, you know, the war on Christmas story, uh, all that kind of shit. And within two years, they had 20,000 members. Uh, they had, you know, they largely pulled their membership from uh, CEOs and middle management. A lot of companies, uh, the CEOs would make their middle managers join the John Birch Society, which meant you know, handing over money and going to fucking shitty John Birch Society meetings. Hmm. And ultimately, their sort of like big target, you know, during this period would be the civil rights movement. And here's what Robert Welch had to say about the civil rights movement to give you an idea of what all this right wing reaction is actually targeting. Uh, Robert Welch said, the trouble in our southern states has been fomented almost entirely by the communists for this purpose, to stir up bitterness between whites and blacks in the South that small flames of civil disorder would inevitably result. They could then fan and coalesce these little flames into one great conflagration of civil war. The whole slogan of, in quotes, civil rights, as used to make trouble in the South today, is an exact parallel to the slogan of agrarian reform, which they used in China. Right. And I think really sums up what the purpose of all this shit was. Right. <laughs> you know, it's not an accident that he uses agrarian reform as this example. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like I said, it, you know, the John Birch Society, you know, all manner of, uh, you know, good, upstanding, mainstream liberal intellectuals decried the John Birch Society, said these are just ignorant hillbillies or whatever, as we've shown that it's actually all just CEOs and shit. Uh, very similar to the reaction to Trump, by the way. And I really just wanted to kind of maybe end on this this sort of uh, reading from Rick Perlstein's Before the Storm, where he sort of answers these accusations. And he says, the cognoscenti neglected the simplest answer about the origins of the John Birch Society. 
people were afraid of internal communist takeover because the government had been telling them to be afraid at least since 1947. Um, when George F. Kennan argued in The Sources of Soviet Conduct, the founding document of the U.S. Cold War Doctrine, excerpted in Reader's Digest, that, quote, exhibitions of indecision, disunity, and internal disintegration within the country have an exhilarating effect on the whole communist movement. Through the 1960s, AFL-CIO President George Meany loved to flatter rank-and-file members that they were the first line of resistance against the communists. In Czechoslovakia, he said, quote, they controlled the trade union movement, and within seven days, they controlled the country. Attorney General Robert Kennedy told a 1961 press conference, quote, communist espionage uh, here in this country is more active than it has ever been. There have been none since, <laughs> to speak of since World War II. Army recruits saw films like Red Nightmare, narrated by Jack Webb, which depicted an ersatz American town deep within the Soviet interior, where spies were supposedly training in, in indigenous American arts, like sipping sodas at drugstore fountains in order to infiltrate the United States. You can no less avoid breathing in a bit of paranoia in Cold War America, in fact, than you could soot in Charles Dickens' Manchester. Did Birchers and their ideological cognates claim that dangerous fallout from nuclear testing was a hoax? So did the Atomic Energy Commission all through the 1950s. And it was the, quote, discoveries of the CIA chief of counterintelligence, James Jesus Angleton, not Robert Welch, that a KGB master plan allowed the Soviet Union uh, to, to turn defectors to the United States and turn them into KGB double agents and that there was a second secret Kremlin inside the official Kremlin whose existence could only be inferred because no one who had ever been inside it was ever allowed beyond its walls. So I like this because Pearl Seaman brings up this good point, which is, yeah, you have these feral right-wing psychos like the Birch Society, John Birch Society, or like MAGA ch you know, chuds mm -hmm. or whatever, but these people don't come out of nowhere. And they are not the creation of working class ignoramuses or whatever, which is the elitist view of all this. Yeah. They're created by the American state. They are the perfect creation of the American state. They're created like a Sauron is creating, you know, monsters in the mud and Lord of the Rings, right? They yeah. are they are the product of the American state. They are not some aberration within it. Uh Richard Hofstadter is as much the father of the John Birch Society as anybody else. The actual end point of that. Yeah. I mean, I guess to, yeah, I mean, to put a bow on it, it seems like th this kind of multi-pronged attack by, you know, the state um, capital on, you know, both, you know, the New Deal and uh, workers, uh, labor movement, etc. Like this, this actually works in spite of, you know, uh, you know, social unrest, like popping up in the 60s, like there, there definitely mm -hmm. was a, a movement there. But I mean, there's a reason in the 60s, the old left was referred to as the old left, because <laughs> by the time the 60s came up, like they were practically <laughs> ir irrelevant yeah. at that point. Yeah. Um, what I think, um, you know, the, the thing to remember is this 
campaign is what sets the stage for the 60s to essentially fail, right? And we shouldn't, you know, we should say to the great credit of the American working class, like, despite being beat over the head with this shit, like, they didn't all buy it, right? I mean, people were still willing to go out for the civil rights movement, still willing to march against the war, all these kind of things. But it did create, it helped foment these particular divisions, right? So it made new left students wary and cynical regarding the labor movement, right? It made the labor movement wary and cynical regarding students, right? It, you know, it created these little rifts, right? It was the reason why MLK and other civil rights leaders were uh, very close to the vast and in fact completely silent on their sympathies with the Communist Party or with the Socialist Project generally. Um, And you could imagine a different world where, you know, if the civil rights movement had led more forcefully with a, you know, image, you know, with a with a politics of, you know, liberation from capitalism generally, if the student movement had been able to lead more forcefully with that, if the, if if all these groups have been able to hook up with the labor movement who was, you know, uh, leading with a sort of, you know, an anti-capitalist politics that the world could have been very different. But this, this campaign, this anti-communist campaign, it short circuited all that shit. And uh, that, you know, that had a real long-term effect on politics of the sixties. And it has a effect on politics to this day. Yeah. It's why there is this, knee jerk reaction that you get from not just libs but from you know all over the left whatever you bring up uh left politics or communist politics or anything like that they'll give you this knee jerk reaction about like oh we can't do that and it's like well who told you you can't do that and it's like well the fucking cia told you you can't do that that's fucking who told you you know <laughs> like uh, uh you know it, it's all part of that it's all one of a one of a piece right Yeah, and I would I would say to you know bring bring it back to where we're going with with LBJ. Um, you know he's going to be coming into the Senate in 1949, kind of as as this campaign is you know like being waged. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know he's he's going to have his his own role to play in uh, in some of this stuff. Yeah, and I mean the thing is, even if you want to believe the best of LBJ, I mean you could you could believe the best of LBJ. This campaign, if we if we remember back to the beginning of this episode, this campaign was begun largely to roll back the New Deal, which was not a revolutionary project. It was begun to roll back a liberal reform project. LBJ is going to try and create the great society, you know, try and get that project off the ground to like essentially cement his name. Right. And he is going to be constrained by these very forces that we're talking about today in the creation of that project. And it is in large part, I mean, the Democratic Party for a lot of reasons, but, you know, the anti-communist campaign being a big part of it and then buying into Oakland and Singer being a big part of it. Part of the reason why the Democratic Party can't do anything is that this campaign existed right like because to do anything well that would that would be too far that'd be going too far that'd be too left we can't do that's anti-american we can't do that right and uh you know and they fear the backlash and all that kind of shit this is all being created in this moment right the the sort of 
the the board on which we're allowed to do politics in this country is being sort of built at this moment. You know, we'll 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 get into all that when you know in a future episode, LBJ enters the Senate. Yeah, and next week we're gonna be talking about the Senate itself, and uh, if you think that it's gonna be any more positive than this has been, <laughs> let me tell you, the Senate fucking is awful. Uh, but it's important to talk about how the Senate functions because uh, I, I think people are uh, confused about the Senate's origin and like what it does. Maybe not who listened to this show, but it'll still be worth going over again. Yeah. And you might find that the Senate's, you know, function and design plays, you know, pretty nice with uh, everything that we talked about in this episode uh, policy wise. Yep. And we'll put links to our previous episodes about LBJ if you want to catch up with his uh, shenanigans up to this point that largely involve drinking and helicopter riding, as well as, you know, if you want to dig back through the archive, you can uh, pull up our episodes about Harry Truman and you can hear about what was happening in U.S. foreign policy at this time, uh, which I got to tell you, wasn't much better. So, but, you know, feel free to pull it up and enjoy. Cool. Yeah. And again, check out the bibliography where you can read uh, some interesting articles that kind of helped us out with this, uh, such as the one on the, the history of the Chamber of Commerce and NAM, especially for me. Yeah. Yeah. So check that out. All right. Well, shall we bring it to an end? Let's adjourn. Let's adjourn.